1: Hey everybody, hey, this is Phil Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. And if you're waiting for Danielle to sign in, so am I. I've been waiting for weeks now. My poor, poor daughter is still dealing with COVID. She's getting very, very much better, but man, alive! It can really, it can really hang on for a long time. Um, I don't wish this on any of you, and hopefully, you're taking precautions um, and playing it safe and wearing a mask and. Social distancing and all those things that, unfortunately, we in the West are not doing nearly enough of. So, um, let me just say that I miss her desperately, and this podcast definitely needs her. But at the very moment, I am going to just do a series of questions and answers today, and hopefully that'll get us to where she's going to be back with us next week. She's really getting close to coming back. I'm super excited! And for those of you who are new to the podcast, which has got to be just about nobody Um, because you guys who are new are starting at Podcast One. By the time you get to here, you pretty well got this figured out that we are working hard to educate both ourselves and everybody else on the best investing strategy that there is in the world, strategies that some of the best investors in the world simply say are the only strategy of investing that makes any sense. And, uh, And that is simply trying to buy $10 bills for $5. I mean, that's what you do when you go to a garage sale, right? And that's really good investing. That's what we want. We don't want to speculate um, when we're buying into companies. We want to buy them at a price that reflects a great discount to their real value so that we, um, even if there's a a mistake that we make, we still get out of it without losing any money. So this investment style is all based around the strategy of rule number one, which Warren Buffett famously said is don't lose money. And of course, rule number two is don't forget rule number one. So let's dive in now with, uh, with questions. I'm just going to open the mic and here we go.
0: Hi, Phil and Danielle. This is Meg calling from Whidbey Island. I am wondering if you can help with a question about stock splits and how it affects how we can calculate our margin of safety. I um, know that we use a historic earnings per share uh, trailing 12 months for the calculation. And I'm a little confused on how, when a stock splits like the apple um, that split four to one, how we can use historical data to still calculate that margin of safety. Uh, Any insights, any clarification you can offer is greatly appreciated. Super love the podcast, love your books, and um, really enjoyed your class, Phil. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
1: All right. Super cool. Um, Really good question that um, confuses a lot of people. Many people really don't understand what a stock split is. A stock split is essentially just re pricing the stock on a per share basis to where more people can do options on it and more people can buy it. And, you know, it's just more accessible to people. Um, has nothing to do with the valuation, which I know is not your question, but let's just deal with the basics here first. And that is that a stock split is the essence of a stock split with Apple, when they did a four to one stock split. Essentially, if you have a dollar of value in the current share that you own, they're giving you four shares worth 25 cents each. So they're just making change for a dollar. And so where you had a dollar of market price a moment ago, the next day you still have a dollar. It's just in 25 cent chunks this time. And that's all a stock split is. There shouldn't be any impact on the value of the business from a stock split. But often there is a big impact on the stock price from the stock split because people are stupid and have no clue. And so or if they're not stupid and many aren't okay, I'll I'll admit that I can hear Danielle yelling at me on this one. Um, If they're not being stupid, they're simply being momentum speculators. And that is because often when stocks split, the price goes up. People buy the stock right before it splits and hope the price goes up. And because people are buying the stock right before it splits and hoping the price goes up and people are jumping in right after it splits, hoping the price goes up, the price goes up. But of anything that could convince you that modern portfolio theory is completely asinine, that would be it. Since there is absolutely no difference in the value of the stock from one day to the next, if the market is pricing things at its value, why in the world would the price move? So I think we can rest our case there. We've made that case for years. So let's talk about the real question, which is, okay, the stock split and now I have four shares when I used to have one, but I'm not even owning the stock. What I want to do is figure out what it's worth. And so when I go look at historical pricing and all the historical data, what am I going to do? I mean, the historical data surely is in the previous stock shares, right? And the answer is, Not if you're using a good toolbox, if you're using a good set of tools, those tools are going to reflect the stock split immediately the day it does it. And they're going to reflect it in all the historical numbers. So not only does the chart change, like let's say Apple was at 500 and immediately goes to $125 a share on a four to one stock split, right? You just divide 500 by four. And that would be the next day's price, probably, except for speculators who, who make a game of it. But essentially, if you're being rational, the next day's price is dollars. So all good, except now when we look historically, aren't we looking back at the numbers on a per share basis that used to be the case back a year ago? You'd be looking at $500 a share or $400 a share, not at $125 a share. But no, that is actually not correct. It's one of the really great advantages of, of the modern era of having fabulous computer tools that used you know have made, made all this so much easier. Back when I first started in 1980, it was uh, a big deal to have a stock split because you have to wait for the new numbers to come out and um, value line, which I didn't, couldn't afford. Um, I wouldn't get that data for months. And, and so you always had to recalculate everything on your own, which is a big pain in the butt, as you can imagine, um, because you're gathering the data off of the former 10 K filings. And those are all reflecting the old number of stock shares. So in that case, she would be right that it's a mess and really takes a lot of work, but not anymore. Now the computer data providers just handle it like our toolbox at rule one investing is all completely up to date on Apple new the new uh, numbers based on the new number of shares. So essentially, our data provider just divides everything by four, all the way back as far as I have data. And so, while the financial statements aren't going to change, because with some exceptions I'll talk about in a second because those are in just the the gross numbers that' is the, the dollars of revenue, not the dollars of revenue per share. It's the net income or the net earnings, not the net earnings per share. Although those per share numbers are in the financial statements, and those will be what changes. not not the gross numbers, but just the per share numbers because they're going to get redivided by the new number of shares. So now Apple has, I think uh, seventeen, thousand. 250 shares, something or 17 million two hundred and fifty thousand shares. Um, and it's four times more than it was a few months ago. So that's how that works. And 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 the beauty of it is if you're using a good tool set, which you should be, then all that's just automatic. And it's just done for you. End of problem. All right, let's go to our next question.
2: Hey, Phil and Danielle. This um uh, my name's Paul. I'm from uh Fort St. John, British Columbia. And I try to do rule on investing, um, with a couple of my brothers up here. So we use each other to bounce ideas off of. And one problem that we always come up against is moat, finding the moat for the business that we're looking at. Um, usually when we finally say what we think the moat is, it usually ends up being under, uh, um, management or finances, um, it's often not something that sets them apart from another company. Um, So right now we're actually tossing back and forth the company Ruger. And I was just wondering what you would think is their uh, actual, their motives. Uh, Yeah, any light you could shed on that would be awesome and would help to uh, solve this whole discussion. Thank you.
1: All right, Paul. Good question about moat. Um, the first thing I would do when I'm looking at moat is uh, go to the 10K, um, the annual report, and go to the competition section and see what it says there. Generally, there's a, there's a statement in the competition section that is, of course, i are not going to say the word moat, but what they'll say is, we compete based on something, right? So if you go to Apple, which you were just talking about, um, you were to go to that section, it would say, we compete based on um, our environment. We have an ecosystem and all of our products combined in the ecosystem give us a dominant position in the marketplace. So that's that's a statement of, about Apple's, um, essentially, their switching mode. Right? Now, you kind of have to translate it into one of the five motes. And remember, the five motes are brand and then switching and then secrets and then toll bridge and price. And a networking kind of a thing falls in under switching, like a Facebook page. So the um, so Ruger, I haven't got this right in front of me right now. I probably should, should try to bring it up. Um, but in general, what you're going to do when you're looking at any company is you're going to look in the 10K and start looking for that that statement of moat, often under the competition section. Now, if it's not there, often it will be in the risk section. So you want to sort of scan down through all the risks that the company and its lawyers have identified um, to you having this be a good investment. These are the risks that you might encounter. And boy, they put everything in there. And often there is a statement in there about the risks of their Position in the marketplace. You know what protects them in the market, and what are the risks that that could go away. So those are the two generally the things that I look for. Now, also you should recognize that if you don't, it, what you're saying is that you and your brothers are out there looking for these companies to have a moat, and often you you decide that the really only competitive advantage the company has is it's got great people running it, um, which isn't a moat, right? We we want to have a moat. So that as, as Warren, as Warren says, we want a moat so big that an idiot can run this company because sometimes an idiot will, or someday an idiot will. And, and so a great management team can produce wonderful results. Um, but that isn't the moat. Now, if they're producing wonderful results, they might have built a moat or they might be in the process of building one because what a moat does and just to make sure everybody follows along here we a moat is what protects you from competition. a moat is what allows the company to be durable because if you're out there making money when we want to buy companies that make good cash flow, if you're making good cash flow it doesn't go unrecognized particularly if you're a p- public company you have to disclose your numbers. So your competition is reading your reports every quarter, and if they see you're making more money than they are, they're going to start looking very seriously at why, and then they're going to try to figure it out. What have you got that I can do to make the kind of money you're making, because you're making more money than me, right? I mean, anybody in business would do that. If you have a laundromat in your local town, and there's another laundromat there, and they're just constantly full of people and they're, you know, clearly they're, the machines are, are, are always upgraded, you know, either some rich person owns it and it's a hobby or they're making more money than you are. And you need to figure out why maybe they put in a bar, right? I mean, you got to figure out what is it that is making them more competitive than you. And then you have to figure out if it's durable. If they just put in a bar, that's not durable. You can put in a bar and compete with them. So What we're looking for is something that is very hard to compete with. So for example, they, this laundromat may have invented a new kind of washing machine and dryer, much, much cheaper to operate, much, much cheaper for the client. So they can underprice you dramatically and they're taking away all of your business. And in order to compete with them, you have to go get those machines. Ah, but wait, they have a patent on those and they're not going to sell you the machine or if they do, They're going to take a part of your profit. So this is the durability factor that we really are trying to look for. And here's the first thing is that you want to make sure you do understand that it's got one and many companies don't have one. And that's why we can't put a value on every company in the marketplace, because either we don't understand what makes them durable, which is the case for me with a company like Intel or something. I don't know how you make a chip, right? I guess I don't really need to know, but I don't know what keeps them from, you know, losing out to the next chip maker. So, you know, either you don't understand it is too hard and many companies are too hard, even for Warren Buffett. So feel, feel comfortable that most companies will be too hard for us. Or, you know, if it's not too hard, if it's, you know, something pretty simple like a hamburger maker, you know, then you got to think, well, does it have one? you know do i understand it well enough to figure it out to it's not too hard but if i can't see a moat maybe it doesn't have one or i don't really understand the business so i would look at it like this if the numbers are really good then there might be some kind of a moat there um, probably is some kind of moat then your job is to figure out what it is and is it durable is it as durable as railroad tracks are for a railroad company right cuz you can't put in any new railroad tracks so that's an incredibly durable moat or the airlines have gates and you can't put in any more gates at atlanta international right or chicago you can't put in more gates so that's a tremendous moat very difficult to overcome that if you want to start a new airline you got to board people with a ladder right so let's go on uh paul to ruger so ruger is um this uh, weapons manufacturer And Ruger got very famous after World War II. Uh, They were providing weapons all through World War I, World War II, or sorry, sorry, they were providing um, technology. And then after World War II, they basically invented a new way to make guns, which was much more, uh, much quicker, cheaper, and less labor intensive. So a more automated way of making guns. And they made very, very good guns, and they made them at a really good price. And some of these guns became iconic, right? Some of us grew up with a Ruger 22, for example, in the first one of the first, you know, rifles I had that wasn't a BB gun. And so Ruger has a, a really high quality product for the price. Now they don't compete on price. In other words, they're not going to just cut their price in order to get you to buy their gun because they're competing with their brand. They have such a strong brand in various weapons that people really like to own. And um, and they have this great reputation with the distributors and the dealers. And as a result, they have a fabulous moat. It's very, very difficult to overcome the Ruger moat. Um, and just in general, you know, the company is so well-managed. They don't have any debt. Um, they just bought um, Remingtons, one of Remington's uh, brands which is called Marlin that goes all the way back into the middle 1800s and made some iconic you know in the western Western world weapons and um, they just bought that out of Remington's bankruptcy. So when you start to add debt to a, to a company when, that's in, in the in the weapons business um, and then they get into litigation like Remington did after Sandy Hook, then all kinds of bad things can happen. And that ultimately took down you know, one of the iconic companies in in firearms. Remington, Remington's gone. I mean, the brands are out there, but the whole company is shut down. It just came out, and just came through bankruptcy and got liquidated. Seven different companies bought them out. So Ruger is in the best financial condition of any company in their industry. They have the strongest brand. They have the largest company in, in terms of revenues. Um, and if you go to uh, any, anybody that sells these kinds of guns, uh, to sporting people and sporting, you know, for sporting, for hunting, um, you'll see that it's very difficult to buy a Ruger right now. You almost can't get your hands on one because they've sold out. So look, without me taking you to the, to the right spot on the 10K, look in the competition section and, again, look in the, um, in the risk section and see if you can suss out kind of what they basically are standing on. Um, and often, if it's hard to find, often it's the brand of the company. Uh, But in this particular case, Ruger actually has a fantastic kind of some kind of secrets. It's not a it's not a secret like a patent, but they also have fantastic production capabilities, um, and that allows them to have uh, a a really good pricing, which gives them great margins. So that's uh, that's that one. Let's go on to the next question.
3: Hi Phil and Danielle, my name's Doug, and I'm contacting you from England. I recently purchased my first stock, which I'm really happy with. It doesn't pay a dividend. But I'm not particularly bothered by that because I'd rather the company reinvest the surplus cash in order to grow the business and give it a a larger valuation further down the line. However, it did get me thinking about the subject of compound interest. So you talk a lot about how vital compound interest is in successful investing, but presumably this only applies to stocks that pay a dividend and relies on you reinvesting that dividend. So I understand that if I invest $1,000 in a company and I receive, for example, $100 in dividends that year... ...that if I reinvest those dividends, I've taken my initial investment from $1,000 to $1,100... ...and if the company grows by, say, 20% that year, I receive a 20% boost on $1,100 as opposed to the original 1000 etc. However, if my stock doesn't actually pay a dividend, presumably compound interest is irrelevant. If I intend to sell my stock when it hits sticker price, it doesn't actually matter if it occurs within 4 years or 10 years as I won't actually make any compound interest in between. So my question is, does compound interest only apply to stocks where the dividend is reinvested, or am I missing something? Thank you.
1: All right, Doug. Um, Yep, I think we're missing something here. I would would say that we're talking about not so much compound interest as compounding um, whatever the capital is. So um, you're correct. If we were just talking about compounding... Uh, the cash flow coming off a company, then it really, com- the concept of compounding wouldn't apply uh, to any of, of those companies other than those who are paying out dividends. But in fact, compounding is so critical to becoming wealthy um, if you, even if you never buy a company that pays dividends. In fact, arguably, the best companies don't pay dividends. Uh, The best companies for the purpose of compounding don't pay dividends at all. Um, And the reason for that is because if you can own a business that is such a wonderful business that it can earn money, it can earn cash flow, and then hold that cash flow as equity, right? And they don't have to spend it on replacing air, you know airplanes or or railroad trains right they just hold the comp- the 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 cash flow from the previous year that becomes equity in the company and then they get a return on that equity of 20% a year or 30% a year that's nirvana because take that example that you gave you get $1000 and then the next year it goes up 10% or something what if you got a thousand dollars of earnings into this company that you own entirely, right? And I always want to think of of ownership as something we do, and we own it entirely as our the sole owner. You get a thousand dollars, and instead of you taking it and having to put that money someplace in order to compound it, you got to put it somewhere. It's got to go into the bank, and it'll compound it. You know, if you're in Germany, it'll compound it minus you know a tenth of a percent or something. In the United States, you could put it away for 10 years, it'll compound it 0.7% per year, which is ridiculously low, um, except when you compare it to Germany. So you're going to compound it at very low rates if you have to take that dividend and put it someplace safe. How much better would it be if you let the company compound it itself? So they take the $1,000 and like an Apple computer, they might make 20 to 30% on it the next year. And your $1,000 just became a much larger equity chunk. And now that 1000 is, say, worth $1,300 of new equity plus the additional equity that they made over the top of that. So you've got this growing equity pile uh, that is so powerful that Warren Buffett says it's a bit like an equity bond. So where a bond would have interest, the equity bond— doesn't pay interest, doesn't even necessarily pay dividends, it just compounds the money inside the bond. So where the bond doesn't compound the money inside it, it's paying it out every year. The equity bond is compounding the money actually inside the bond. And so that money starts to grow. And since companies' values in the market reflect ultimately their ability to grow that capital over the long run then ultimately the stock price will reflect that kind of growth rate. It'll be in the stock price. And so when we're saying that we are going to buy a company, let's say for hundred dollars a share, and the company is compounding equity very, very, very well, it's growing at you know, 20% a year, five years later, or let's say six years later, seven years later, I think at 20% a share, about seven years later, um or 20% per year 7 years later that company will be worth four times more you will have compounded your money compounded annual growth rate of 20% per year so your $1000 will become $2000 and then become $4000 in 7 years and in about 11 years it's going to become $8000 so if you look at how this money is growing It starts at a thousand and then you leave it alone with a wonderful business, and that money just compounds itself. Its compounded annual growth rate is stunning at 20% a year, so that 11 years later, you don't have a thousand anymore, you have 8,000. And if you were to do the math on what that compounded annual growth rate would be, it'd come out around 20%. And that again is because at the end of the day, The market isn't just an emotional machine that's putting prices on based on who's the most fearful or who the most greedy is, like where we're at right now, right? It's actually a weighing machine. It's actually going to weigh out the value of these companies. And if this company is able to build on its assets every year with a huge return on on equity, on invested capital of 20% or 30%, Oh my gosh, the value of that company, as long as it can continue to do that well into the future, is going to be enormously increased. So if we can buy a company like that when it's on sale, and I think there's a number of companies that are still on sale in this kind of COVID world that we're living in. If we can buy a company like that on sale, and then it does compound at a huge rate of invested capital, return on invested capital. Ultimately, the stock price will reflect that down the road. And when it does, um, you know, when you're ready to cash in, ideally not until you really need the money in retirement or something, you, you've, let, you've let a wonderful company compound your money at 20% for 20 years, you know, unbelievable what can happen to $1,000, right? I mean, if you're compounding at 26% per, per, per year, which is a rule one standard target, you're doubling your money every three years. And many of these companies, many of the best companies do compound return on invested capital at 26% per year. And so if they're holding on to all the capital, they're not paying a dividend. They're just compounding that money at that rate. And that stock is going to reflect that. Now you mentioned dividends. We don't, we don't not buy a company because it produces dividends. And we don't buy a company because it produces dividends. Dividends are, a choice of a CEO to allocate capital. And if that CEO sees that they cannot produce a high rate of return on invested capital, then they need to get rid of some of that invested capital. They need to get rid of the capital. And the way they get rid of the capital to bring it down, since they can't, they can't invest it themselves with a high rate of return, they gotta get rid of some of it. What they're gonna do is hand it back to you in the form of buybacks, which gives you a higher percentage ownership of the business if they're buying it at a great price or dividends. So we would, that, that's why we would prefer to have them, the, you know, be able to allocate capital to their future growth um, as opposed to paying out a dividend because it's just easier. I mean, they, they're able to, you know, compound that money instead of me trying to figure out how to compound the money. And that's really the secret, Doug, is that we're not looking for interest per se, we're looking for value to be compounding at a high rate of return. And the value of a business is going to be directly related to the kind of future cash flows it can produce. And if it's able to continue to grow those at high, high rates of return, which is reflected by high return on equity, high return on invested capital, high return on assets, right? Then you are going to have a real winner down the road in terms of that ability to compound. And the beauty is we don't have to figure out where to put the money if we don't take it in the form of a dividend. All right. Super good questions, you guys. I'm going to leave it at that uh, right now. and We'll come back next week. Uh, we'll have Danielle back. I'm so excited. She's getting stronger and stronger and uh, and fighting off that horrible virus. And all of you stay safe, you guys. Um, until next week, time to go play. See ya! Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there, Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.